You're listening to the Art of Dying Well podcast, making death and dying something we can all talk about. Hello everyone, James Abbott here with the Art of Dying Well podcast. Now, there can be few things more devastating than the death of a child. When this tragedy happens before you've even had a chance to say hello and enjoy those miraculous early moments, it adds another layer of pain and grief. Baby Loss Awareness Week takes place every year between the 9th and the 15th of October and helps us break the silence around pregnancy and baby loss. It's also an opportunity to come together in remembrance of all the much-loved babies who died too soon as well as a chance to raise awareness of the thousands of families affected by loss each year. Here on the Art of Dying Well podcast, we've produced two testimony-based podcasts to help our listeners understand a little bit more about the heartache and grief that mothers and indeed fathers and other family members face at this most difficult of times. For this podcast, part one, we speak to Saskia Hogbin, who tragically lost her baby, Joseph, 28 weeks into her pregnancy. More than one in five pregnancies end in miscarriage. That's around a quarter of a million in the UK each year. And although most miscarriages occur in the first three months, they can happen much later. When you lose a baby late in pregnancy, the pain is visited on everyone and the loss is acute. But there can be shards of light in the darkness. This is Saskia's story. I I always wanted to be a mum, but I never imagined otherwise. And it's quite funny because I'm still the generation where you're slightly expected to get a career, but also about family life. And I didn't really want the career. I mean, I was happy with the career, but I didn't want that. I wanted just to be with the family. And I very early, early on knew that I was going to have trouble conceiving. And when I met my husband, I did say to him quite quickly, poor love, um, you know, if if we want to have a family, we need to think about it quickly. And he said, that's fine. You know, and I, I think by that point, we'd already kind of knew that we were destined together. So once we so married and, you know, we, we both agreed that we'd start a family very quickly. I then went to the hospital. I was diagnosed with endometriosis early on and later polycystic ovaries as well. So I knew the journey wasn't going to be straightforward. But at that time, nobody knew how tricky that was. So we went through the usual chain of IUI, IVF, and I wasn't sure I wanted to do IVF, but we had to separate head and heart sometimes. So with IVF, when it was one of the big ones, is that we heard of so many families that would go again and again and again. And we made the decision we would just go for the one free NHS. Um, And at that time, nationally, it was a little bit of a postcode lottery because there were some NHS centres that were offering up to three free, but our area wasn't. And we just felt if you started paying, when did you stop? What we didn't want to do was to fall into massive debt and then not be able to appreciate the child. And, And we'd heard of cases of this. And that's not judging anyone who has done that. It's just that wasn't right for us. So anyway, so so our journey went on. And when IVF failed, um, I turned to my husband and said, can we adopt? Which we did. And um, 
we had two children. But there was something in it that just I couldn't let go. I'm a Christian person. And for me, it was just let's see what God has in store for us. And I conceived and I conceived what I thought initially was a girl. He would have been nine this year. And I forget we started off believing he was a girl. And I remember being really anxious for the first 12 weeks of this um, pregnancy because I thought naively that once you reach the 12-week mark, then that was it. Everything would be absolutely fine. It's just getting to the 12-week mark. So I guess that's the common story that you hear. So we reached 12 weeks. Everything was fine. We had a few more scans because of my journey. And then they did say that the 20-week scan is a viable pregnancy one. And it didn't mean anything to me. And naturally, we took the children along with us to the 20-week scan, really excited because we wanted to introduce them to their, their sibling. And um, interesting enough, my daughter was um, very much, no, no, don't want another person in the house. <laughs> and the older one was so excited. It was like, oh, look, see things, you know, like their hands and everything. So the um, uh, radiographer was really, really good about, you know, showing us bits of heart. And she said at that point, the baby's a little bit small. And they said, but, you know, I'm not exactly a, a tall person. Could be just just that. It could be more to it. Could be that the child's um, got downs or, you know, there, there are various things. They, they were overly concerned at that point. But they made the decision that at that point they wanted to monitor me more frequently because it wasn't 100% right, but they didn't know why or what. And then as the next sort of six weeks, really, we started to find out that there was a problem with the placenta and it wasn't functioning properly. And I was starting to um, get high blood pressure. And I remember being admitted to hospital because of the high blood pressure. And there was this, this doctor that stood beside me. And we were on a ward. And although I had the curtain around me, this doctor said to me, do you know that if you've got this high blood pressure at this stage, the pregnancies don't last. Well, that's when the faith came through. And I thought, we've been waiting for this child for so long. I don't believe you. This child is an exception. This child is a gift from God. So this child is not going to die. And this woman just sat there, stood there. She was not going to leave until I accepted that this child wasn't going to survive. And we were almost having like this childish argument you know I accept what you're saying but I don't believe it and she's saying this child's not going to survive and eventually I just thought I'm going to just have to say I know the child's not going to survive because I can't get rid of this woman this conversation was just not going to stop and she went off and just about every other patient on the ward came to me and said I can't believe that lady she was so blunt. There, was, there wasn't any care. I didn't notice that because I was just so adamant that actually this isn't going to be me. This isn't going to be our baby because we've been waiting so long for it that actually it had to be a gift from God and it would be fine. So eventually I kind of went home. I was monitored regularly. And around 26 weeks, I remember sitting there waiting for the scan. And the reality was that the baby wasn't going to survive. And that we had to reach that state of acceptance that this, this wasn't going to happen. We, I'd have to say the medical staff were incredible. And I can't remember how they phrased it, but they did offer 
a termination. But they said it very delicately. They weren't that blunt. And I think they said something like, we can help this along, because they knew this child wasn't going to survive. And I was still holding on to my faith and saying, I just, whatever happens, I have to leave it into God's hands. Because actually, I don't want to be, as I felt, killing the child. But actually, if this child's not meant to survive, And the hospital, the consultant that we had, the hospital was amazing because they genuinely considered what were the other options that could help this child to reach a point that the pregnancy was was viable for the child to survive. The fact that it reached 26 weeks was one milestone, but he was too small. So that was survival. So they talked about things like um, oxygen chambers and things like that. But she kept saying, oh, that won't do because of this. So I really felt she was really trying rather than just dismissing. And there was no sense of, well, this child's not going to survive, so therefore you terminate pregnancy. There was none of that. It was suggested and then that was it. So I lived for the time. And what I also did is I set up a WhatsApp group with my friends, my close friends, because what I didn't want to do is there was a group of mums that we went for coffee every week and I didn't want to turn up into the coffee shop and then there's this silence of like, what do we say to her? You know, better not talk about that. And I thought, I don't want that. So I set up the group and I told them, I want life to carry on normal. And if I'm having a bad day, I will put on the group, I'm having a bad day but I want everything to carry on as normal. And they all respected that. And it was really lovely that, you know, we could. I could still hear about the niece because I wanted to hear about the niece. Just because I was having my own difficulties didn't mean to say I didn't want to hear everyone else's joys. So we shared it. So we went for the scan, the final scan. We didn't actually know at that point that that the child died. And... One thing that was really important to me was to name the child because it was a child. You know, it lived within me. It was a person. It was a child. And so we we did spend that time. And as I said, we thought it was a girl. So we spent the time and she was going to be called Gabriella. And that gave me that sense of feeling that she was her identity. I remember really praying that... I could hug that child. I could almost reach an acceptance that they weren't going to survive, but I just wanted it to survive, even 30 seconds outside the room so I could cuddle that child alive. Mm. And when we knew that it was very unlikely for, I could say her, because she was a her at that point, yeah, was going to survive, I talked to two people so the the hospital gave us the contact for sands and um sands are a, a charity that support um stillbirth and and premature births and i spoke to this chap he was incredible i'd, I'd almost ring him weekly and he was particularly good and i would uh, ring when i knew he was on shift on the answer machine uh, you know and i'm not saying the others weren't good but this guy just got me in you know and he was really good because the other consideration was not just my grief. It was suddenly the grief of the rest of the family. So, so journeying with my husband, my mum, who I'm very close to, and the two children. And it was kind of like, what do we ask? What do we do? You know, how do we support? You know, all this kind of thing. So he was giving up support. 
uh, being Christian, I also went to parish priest. And I think Father Christian gave me the best bit of advice overall. And what he said was, you need to normalise death. And he wasn't trying to say, you undermine it, you underestimate it. He was just saying, make it normal. Because one thing for sure, we all know we're going to die. And and I thought, wow, yeah, that's a really good thing. So whenever I was struggling with the children and trying to prepare them on this journey, I'd always try and remember, make this normal. And there were really tough moments because I did have to prepare what was then a five-year-old and a two-year-old for this journey that they were excited about having a sibling, that this wasn't going to happen. And so we would talk about it and... I think that was one time that I was really grateful to have faith that I could talk about heaven and we'd lost my grandmother. So, you know, there was imagery around um, that the baby would be with granny and, you know, all these kind of things uh, we could talk about. So going back to the day came and the scan said the heartbeat had stopped. And it felt very strange, that reality and slightly beautiful the radiographer she also cried she she journeyed with us and that was really moving because it made the process feel less clinical and more almost like a family they 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 had been with us they had journeyed with us they experienced our pain they'd experienced our passion and desire to have this family and Yes, yeah, so she said, I need to speak to the consultant. And obviously, she took us on. The consultant was much more clinical. That was her style. And in some ways, I respected that because I had an open relationship with her that I could say, just tell me, just to prepare me for things. I'd rather know what's going on than you try and wishy-washy things or, you know. So she explained the best thing to have was this particular tablet, which would help. Um, the delivery she said that the best thing to do was to have a natural delivery um, of the child I wasn't prepared for that and I think at that stage both of us well, my husband and I we've talked about it since we were numb at that stage and actually we were so numb that we were just yeah okay that's what we've got to do there, yeah there was no emotion to that because because we were so numb we were devastated that it had actually happened. So I took the tablet and um, they'd already taken us to, um, there's a special room in the ward. It's been funded by SANS. And although it's on the um, delivery ward, it's separate from the main delivery ward. I think you go into the delivery ward and this room is on the right. And then the main delivery ward is further down on the left. So you're not even near, shall I say, the, the successful deliveries which which is really beautiful and, and we'd already visited this room so we knew what it was like so I guess in some ways we were really lucky that we had that time to prepare and I had no idea how to deliver a baby I had I hadn't gone through antenatal we'd started it but we hadn't done anything so I had no idea what was going to happen to my physical body you know okay you see on movies and oh yeah out pops a baby but I didn't know this meant to me or anything so there's like that unknown so anyway so we arrived in the room and we just assumed 12 hours later the baby would come out because that's what the movies make it look like so they said be prepared take some stuff with you and because we're pragmatists we did stop and think 
oh, what should we take? Because what we didn't want to do was take our most favourite music because then every time we'd be listening to that music. It's association, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we we took um, the Lord of the Rings films and uh, yes, there's association, but we just felt that that was something we'd already grown to love and enjoy. Actually, it didn't matter. And actually, we haven't made the association with Lord of the Rings. There'll be the memory there, but not the, you know, just sat watching the movies. The bit advice were obviously various. Some were really great. Some were more authentic, and you know, and and I said, I don't know the process. I don't want to have. Oh, don't worry, we'll be with you. We'll we'll come to you with the whole journey. And I was like, but can you just tell me? You know, I know what physically happens, but what you know, what is this process like? So eventually, I think it was two days later, who we now know is Joseph, came along, and. Um, and the midwife that we had, she was perfect for, for us at that time because she she came in on shift that morning and um, she said, um, basically, quite bluntly, but nicely, you know, th- this is a very tricky situation, um, but I'm here for you and, you know, we'll, we'll get through this together. She said, um, is there anything I can get you? And this is like eight o'clock in the morning. So, oh, didn't time, it would be great. And you knew straight away that had set the banter. Do you know what I mean? And she kind of she had obviously gauged us, we'd gauged her, and we could have that kind of fun in a tricky situation, um, yeah. which was lovely. So as the morning went on, uh, the contractors had started, and um, Joseph um, was delivered. So obviously she she swiftly took him off um, after delivery to sort him out. And um, they had a beautiful Moses basket. It must have been a, a doll's Moses basket. So he was very tiny. But she came into the room and she said, uh, you know, you were expecting a Gabriella. And um, we were like, yeah, um, well, I think it's Robert instead. And of course, we laughed because that's, you know, and it was, again, it was perfect because you can imagine that tension that we were still numb. There was no emotional there, but you can imagine that tension. And so she said, what would you like me to do with him? And um, we we didn't know. You know, what, what do you say? Um, you know, what am I supposed to do? Stroke, what do I want to do? I don't know what I want to do because my emotions are just so churned up. So we, she popped him on the bed. And so we then quickly sort of said, what do we want to call him? Because, again, what really kept coming to me on the grief process was... I wanted to cuddle this child alive and I couldn't. And then she rightly said to us that she said, take care of touching him because his skin is very tacky because he had been dead within me for a minimum of two days, probably longer, but we didn't know. It was no longer than five days. And so she said, I think when she cleaned them up, that possibly she realized that the skin would have easily come away. So that made us too terrified to touch him and to hug him. And that that is one of my regrets, is that moment I would have loved to have hugged him. And I wish I'd thought about it and actually just maybe picked him up in the blanket that he was wrapped in or even just picked up the Moses basket and hugged it. But I, I didn't. You, you're not thinking rationally no. at that point. Identity and name was very important. So we did name him Joseph and we spelt it the German way with the F on the end because I was supposed to be a boy and I was supposed to be called Gareth. And so my parents had a similar 
kind of shocked that oh it's a girl not a boy and um and my mum happened to work with a lady called Saskia and, and so that's why I was named Saskia and so in a sense there was almost this humorous side to Joseph that actually we were expecting a girl and there comes this boy so my husband said um so my name was obviously Dutch and he said oh should we spell it the German way instead of the British way so yeah so that's why he was um Joseph then you're sort of in this limbo. You're in shock, but you don't know what to do. You don't know what the expectations are. And it's quite, quite odd. I had called the priest to come. So he did come the day before. And again, now I look back, I wish people would just say things. Because the priest came and Joseph was still very, you know, still within me, hadn't been delivered. And um, he'd came to bless Joseph. And he said, oh I, oh, I can't because he's not born sort of thing. And he was obviously expecting him to be born. And I didn't think to say, I'll come back tomorrow or anything like that. But, you know, I think he offered to come back the following day. And it just seemed really odd to call him to come back the following day. Maybe that kind of sense of blessing wasn't important to me. I, I don't know. But, you know, he, he'd offered. We had some thoughts of allowing our children to meet Joseph, but... There was a combination that we decided it would probably be too distressing for the children. So actually, we were not in a place to accompany the children at that point. The hospital very casually said, stay as long as you like. And then there, there was that kind of mischievous side of us, like, oh, should we stay for a week? You know, um, <laughs> lots of food and someone else looking after the older two. But actually also kind of thinking, well, what does that mean? And I think they weren't wanting to rush us out, but also we were respectful that probably, sadly, there might have been somebody else that, that needed the room. So we stayed um, another night. And it was quite funny because when we were leaving, they were like, oh, oh, you're going, going already, which was quite strange. But the midwife that was discharging us, was it, she was not as in tune with us. And I'd asked for copies of notes uh, because that was my memory of Joseph, of, of the scans and of the notes and all. It meant that he was alive to me. And um, she was obviously quite cross that I was asking for this, which was quite sad. Yeah. So we, yeah, so we come home and then I, I have to fall straight into mummy mode for, for the older two. So it's that talking to them, allowing them to talk and that kind of side of things. And I, the, the discussions I'd had for Father Christian were very, very helpful at this point because it was recognising that actually this is their journey. It's not just mine, this is theirs. And I later came up with the, the name of the buttering the toast moment because when you're buttering the toast, certainly in our kitchen at the time, you've got your back to the children and that's the time that they ask the questions or they make the statements. I miss Joseph. What do you think Joseph would have for breakfast? What do you think he would be up to now? And those are the toes that you don't want to be facing them because actually the tears are welling up in your eyes. But you were brave enough to respond to them and say, I think he'd have jam on his toes. What do you think? You know. That is brave. Did, did you feel you needed a bit more time for yourself though, Saskia? I mean, after, after that, I, I know there's no choice and I know... 
you know, you do have the children, of course, and, and they're very, very important, very precious. But did you sort of think, is, is there not a way for me just to have that little bit of space to process, to recover? Do you, do you lament that a bit? Is that the right word? Yeah, no, I do. And it took me years to properly grieve. And and it was hard that not having that, that space. I think it slightly reflected my personality as well, that that giving to others and being there for others. Um, my, my needs can be dealt with later, mm. but you can be conscious of the fact that actually later never comes or yeah. later doesn't come quick enough. I do remember our midwife was very, very good, the community midwife, and she came. And naturally, as you can imagine, I, I cried a lot. No, actually, no, at the beginning, I didn't cry. I think I was still very numb. And yeah. she came and she visited and she said some quite direct things, which many people would find hurtful, but the tears just flooded. And my husband came behind me and gave me this big hug and said, are you okay? And when she'd gone, he said, she was awful, wasn't she? And I'm like, no. I think because she connected with me on a level, I think it's probably a female-to-female level, I later heard that she never managed to have children herself. I don't know whether she went through miscarriages and things herself. So I think she probably understood at a level that nobody else, or not many people understand, shall I say. Yeah, but do, do you know what? I, I will say, I'll say this about you, Saskia. I think you're very easy to connect with. Because I was, I was thinking to myself, you know, I, I, there's, there's no question I can ask you. You're telling the story beautifully, very poignantly. There's no point. I'm not going to ask any questions. I don't need to. And then in, in my head, I'm thinking, oh, right. So my first question has got to be important. I think I, I, I want to ask you about you, about your well-being. Hence the question I asked. But the only thing that was going through my head was, oh, I was going to be called Kirsty. Saskia was going to be called Gareth. You know, it's, I, I think you've, you've got a very playful side to you, even in the most ridiculously painful times. You, you come across to me as someone who is very selfless, actually, who does want to present a happy side to people, even when inside it must be so painful, so difficult. And I'm almost thinking your husband might be sort of, you know, especially when he said to you, oh, crikey, wasn't she awful? It's almost like you're, you're, you're both quite lovely protective people he's protecting you you're protecting her you know it's it's a very generous state of mind I must say but did did you sort of forgive me for flitting a bit did you did you think about your husband as well and like oh crikey well what's he going through he's obviously trying to you know he put the the arms around me and hugged me thinking goodness me what an awfully traumatic set of blunt questions to be going through with the community midwife did you find yourself once again stepping outside of yourself and looking after him and thinking about him I think at the beginning, I didn't need to, and I couldn't. And uh, what little emotional energy I did have went to the children. Yeah. Um, agree. And, and because they were adopted as well, I was kind of a little bit conscious that the trauma may be a little bit different to them than an average person. My husband is I'm very lucky that he really is a real rock to me, and that I can jump around and be playful, but I know he's really solid and he's there for me. Like like a true parent, really. Probably parents people. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not to say that later on, you know, I I'd extend to him. So once once I got through that numbness and, and I've reached a for me the next phase was just constant crying. 
The other thing, sorry, with the constant crying is um, my daughter was at home because she was two, two and a half when um, Joseph was born. And you suddenly realise that she, when I cried, because I don't cry much, or if I cry, I cry privately. And she would have a mummy that was sat there crying. And this poor girl was terrified. And that's where Sans came into place and said, she probably is, just tell her that you're crying and why you're crying. And so, you know, I would pick her up and give her a card and say, well, mummy's sad because Joseph has gone to heaven and, you know, that kind of thing. And we did this for a while. And then she learned to sort of say, um, how can I make you happy? Or, oh, or maybe I said, or oh, you can make me happy by giving me a cuddle or something like that. But So she um, she had a comforter. And eventually she would just, she would see me crying. She'd look up at me, she'd just hand me her comforter and say, there you go, mum. That's so sweet. <laughs> and I think to this day, she's got a level of empathy that most children, because of that experience that they most have. The other story to say without jumping around too much is my son wanted to understand that, and that's very much where my son is. So obviously he said, you know, what, what will happen? And and as as the teaching is, is that, you know, that you go to heaven. The church was beautiful in the way it stepped in and in a right level took over the funeral. They didn't force it upon us, but I think before that point, I always imagined that we would be cremated but the local priest came up to me, who wasn't the parish that we attended, and he said, of course, there's a place for him in the um, in the graveyard. Like, oh, okay. And actually, it was perfect because I didn't have to think. And so he, he kind of took charge of that and the location and, and everything. And our parish priest said, I know an undertaker's, I'll get it sorted. And, and the undertaker, again, was was perfect. I'm going to sidetrack with this story first. So the actual burial, the funeral, we did have a funeral. I wanted the funeral to be fairly fast. We were lucky because we, we could do that. And we were probably, not, I think it's usually within two weeks, there's a funeral. And our parish priest was going away in two weeks. And I kind of couldn't even imagine having this funeral without this chap because he'd, he'd accompanied us the whole way. And so we had to have the funeral about a week later. Was it two weeks later, but not three? I can't remember, but it was very fast. We obviously called everyone and said, you know, please come to the funeral. And the undertaker said to us in the book, one of the last times that he saw us, is there anything else that you would like from me or I can do to help the day to go well? And I said, my biggest fear of the day is that my son is going to want to keep digging the hole for the grave of our son. Don't worry, he said. I'll have a spade at the side and I'll sort it for you. And I thought at that point, I knew I could trust this man. Yeah. So we arrived at the church. There was another hang-up was the size of Joseph. You can imagine the tiny coffin. And my son was so engrossed and enwrapped into this whole process. He ran to the back to the undertaker. And and he's, he's five or six at this stage. And he's saying, can I carry him? And the undertaker said, all right. So I've got this beautiful picture of my son holding the front of the coffin and the undertaker and my son carry coffee to the front. And my son had to sit by the coffin at the front because he needs to know that that's where his brother was and it was okay. 
And I would have normally accompanied my son and talked him through it and everything. And I couldn't do it. You know, my, my grief was so great. But my aunt, she just stepped in and she sat beside him, beside the coffin. She answered all the questions. And it was very moving. And now I look back at it now, just how incredible that was. So his journey has been interesting. So where I was going to go before was that he was worried about Joseph being buried because he said, if Joseph's buried, then surely the soil will go within him. So quickly thinking as a mum, he's like, don't worry, don't worry, it's okay. Because your soul, which is your thinking, your loving, that goes to heaven. So it's only his body and the body will feed the plants all around. So I think he's right, okay, I've got that. And obviously previously he said, well, what is heaven? And of course to five-year-old, how do you explain heaven? And we're always taught heaven is the best thing ever. So what's the best thing ever for a five-year-old? Chocolate cake. So it's all right. It's all right. Because heaven is like eating chocolate cake. So he comes to me on one of those bread of toast moments. He says, but if your mouth doesn't go to heaven, how can you eat chocolate cake? Ah, difficult question. So I went to Father Christian with that one. I'm like, how can yeah. I answer this one? <laughs> so, yeah, so it was. So the next part of our journey was that I conceived multiple times including Joseph and a miscarriage before Joseph, I think I had around 10 oh. miscarriages. And, and, and the 10th was a child, a girl. And somewhere along that journey, we went to the clinic and we would look to help. And a lot of the NHS were just saying, you're too old, you know, I was over 30 at this point, you're too old and we're not going to do anything for you. And I met this consultant, um, Professor Hazel. And he said to me, miscarriages are obviously really hard. Most of my miscarriages were before six weeks. And he said, there's no doubt about it. But he said, medically, one thing we know is that if you have multiple miscarriages, one of them will be successful. And being a Christian, I came back and I prayed on that. And I felt, God, what would you like me to do with this? So many women, and I completely understandably, say, I can't go through this emotional trauma. That's enough. Yes, what I couldn't move forward with was the moment that actually, if I wasn't supposed to conceive, why was I conceiving it? Was this not God's plan? Was this not a bigger picture? And so I allowed myself to continue to conceive. And then... As I said, on the 10th pregnancy, we were fortunate to have a beautiful little girl. And she's now five. And I oh, look at wonderful. her, and I do miss Joseph. But that time that we had Joseph, we were in a tiny house. We know if Joseph had survived at 28 weeks, he would have been very unwell and probably a very difficult childhood or adult life. And maybe... The blessing is that we got to know both children. I got to know Joseph, and now we've got to know Hetty as well. So, it, yes, it was difficult, but we got there. And I don't let go of Joseph. Joseph, the grave area that we were given for Joseph has beautiful wild flowers behind it. So snowdrops in the early year and bluebells around the time that he was born, which was May. 
And bluebells have become his symbol. Someone gave us, actually, at the time of his funeral, a pot for bluebells. She has a wild wood. And she said, I never knew how difficult it was to dig up bluebells because they're tiny, tiny bulbs. But she put probably about 20 bowls in a pot. And she said, so every year this pot nourishes with bluebells. We've since moved into another house that's got wild bluebells. And so the bluebells will cherish the memory of Joseph. That's amazing. That is so, that's so beautiful. I, and, you know, when we started speaking, I thought, because I, I tear up like there's no tomorrow, I'm not going to lie. And I knew, I knew I would do so today. It was obvious. But honestly, your, your strength is very inspiring as well. I think it's, you know, I, I can't imagine, actually. My, my wife's had a couple of miscarriages and I found it very traumatic. I found it a bit confusing as a man. That's why I, I asked you the question about your husband in a way. Because knowing how to grieve is quite a strange one. that You feel a bit all at sea for a little while. But I think the, I just want to finish by asking just one simple question, actually, because you've told your story so eloquently and so beautifully. And I've got the bluebells and Joseph in my head now. But, I, you know, one thing that really landed on me was that when, when you almost said with, with a little bit of regret, well, perhaps if I'd have known, I'd have picked up the Moses basket and hugged it or I would have been a little bit, you know, I would have thought, OK, I've been given all the advice, but I'm going to sort of hold hold my son and so forth. Tell me what, what you've learned and what advice you'd perhaps give to others that will, equally will find themselves a bit understandably unsure what on earth they can do at these very traumatic times. I, so when we went through the pregnancy with um, the little girl afterwards, I said to the consultant, much more bluntly, I want to know what's happening and I want, to, I want you to be blunt with me. And that's what I would say to people is... Just be straight with people and just say, I'd like you to journey with me or whatever language is right for you. But just say, I'm scared. Can you tell me what's going to happen? And just feel free to be that honest. Because actually, in this case, we're talking about a lot of medical professionals. They're, they're quite happy to do that. And you've got to remember that they're human as well. They don't want to overstep the mark of being insensitive in, in a situation. And actually, if you give them almost that guidance of I'm happy for you to be blunt and you might not be and that's fine but actually if you are is is ask and sans um, and we're not here to promote sans but I found sans just amazing because they really were there and they knew because they heard so many stories of people and they were willing to share those stories and experiences and send through information that could give guidance and the things. We chose to be quite open. So even thinking about the school, that um, we went to the primary school and said, this is happening. And suddenly, if I ever need to take my son out, because there was one point that we went to a city to see whether Joseph could be supported through a full-term pregnancy, and the school, no hesitation, just said, yeah, fine, take him. No arguments. Whereas... Many people know that nowadays trying to take children out of school is really tricky. And so just being open means that you don't get some of those fights and um, that you don't really want to have at a time like this. Yeah. Well, look, it, it only remains for me to say thank you. Thank you very much, Saskia. I think, well, I've felt it. I've learned a lot. It's a really, really moving story, so beautifully told. And um, thanks for telling us about your your lovely family as well. It sounds like everyone had a, their role to play. 
Um, there's a lot of happiness in the story as well. And the, the Bluebells and Joseph and, and his place, it just seems to me that you've, you've done really, really well in, in terms of going through the grief holding a beautiful place for your son and the rest of the family being involved too. So thank you so much for sharing that. We're really grateful. Thank you. The Art of Dying Well podcast is available on Amazon, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and more. Just search on your preferred platform. Goodness me, I I must echo again our sincere thanks to Saskia for bravely sharing her experiences so openly and candidly. She mentioned Sands in the interview, so let's give that bereavement charity a plug. Sands, just as it sounds, .org.uk, clearly helping many people cope in those painful days of extreme grief. So do go to their website and check out the resources there. Well, that's it for the first of our two podcasts on the heartache of baby loss. Our second podcast that will be out later in the week focuses on the story of a truly amazing couple who took the almost unquantifiable pain of the stillbirth of their daughter and decided to help other parents who found themselves facing the same trauma and numbness. We'll join you again then. Thanks very much for listening. Bye for now. Bye for now.